Hello. Hello. All right, there we go. So we're doing Catwoman first this time, huh? Yeah, because I want to get it out of the way. It's probably not a bad call. Put it at the end. I'll dread the end of this podcast. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Azarelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybrook. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 123.5. I'm your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Ed. And today we are bringing you the latest comic book news and comic book reviews from the second tier of books from the month of August. Uh, we have a total of eight books to cover, and we have just a small amount of news, and we do have some listener Q&A. So real quickly, before we get into comic news, I do want to let everybody know that this podcast is sponsored by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio provides quality, affordable headphones. If you head over to the website, thebatmanuniverse.net, there's a banner at the top that will direct you to tweakedaudio.com. When you are checking out, you can put in the promo code TVUSAVES and save 33% off your entire order, plus get free worldwide shipping. They're pretty moderately priced. We're talking, you can get a $15 pair of headphones for only $10 of free shipping worldwide. So this isn't just something that's open to our listeners in the U.S., but listeners around the world. So if you need a new pair of headphones, I implore you to check out tweakedaudio.com and use the promo code TBUSAVES. The very first thing we're going to cover is uh, we're going to talk on August 12th, the solicitations for November were released. And this is the month that has a lot of the tie-ins for Batman Zero Year, including among them some of the bo- out of the books that we covered here on the .5 cast. Batwing, Catwoman are all part of that as well. Outside of that, it doesn't appear that any of the other books that we cover here are tying in. Batwoman is not tying in. So the only ones out of all the books that are actually going to be tying into the Batman Zero Year that we cover here is Catwoman, Batwing, and Red Hood. Also in November is the first issue of Harley Quinn, which we will start covering, obviously, come November here on this point five cast. For whatever reason, it's a Harley Quinn number zero instead of a Harley Quinn one, so I'm wondering if they're possibly going to be telling, retelling the origin of Harley Quinn. And that's part of the reason why it's a zero year. Um, But we'll have to wait and see because they don't really mention in the solicitation what exactly this is going to happen in this book. It just says, but will any of them measure up to the exacting standards of the clown princess of crime? Don't miss the thrilling return of Harley Quinn in her debut. And that's, that's it. So it's a very, very great description of what we're expecting. You know, it's funny because anyone who's who's been reading Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad number zero was a Harley Quinn origin story. And I guess I was reading an, an interview online with Jimmy Palmiotti that Harley Quinn number zero is going to be a chance where they're going to have five or six artists in there. And the book is going to be Harley Quinn picking who she wants to be her artist as opposed to it's supposed to be like a 
a number zero origin story of the art team. So I don't know. Could be interesting. I'm okay with that because that actually is a little bit that, that could be fun, and we all know that none of none of the Batman books that we're covering are a whole lot of fun. So it could be interesting to see what happens with that. All right. So the other bit of news we have is actually comes at the very end of the month on August 28th. DC Comics announced, for whatever reason, Catwoman number 23 reportedly sold out. <laughs> that means that all of the first printing issues were sold. And as we know, we, the, the two of us, have not been really enjoying Catwoman whatsoever. But the suspicion is that because the Joker's daughter makes her debut at the end of this book, that's why it's sold out. But my prediction is that this book has been underperforming so much that they just stopped printing so many copies just so that they could say, hey, this book sold out. Yeah, I, I think that if you look at the sales of the book, it's, it's gotten pretty bad. Even our you know small amount of bad press aside, I think that they probably, like you said, had so few copies out in print that when people started picking it up for whatever reason, it was a bump in the sales, which was probably, like you said, the Joker's daughter, that it probably sold out rather rather quickly because that's the only reason on earth. I mean, when I heard that, I just that's when you, you run through the Google search a couple times just to make sure you're reading it right. But yeah, I was pretty shocked to hear that news. All right, so... That is all of the news we have. We're going to jump right into our books. And the very first book we're going to cover is, in fact, that Catwoman issue that, for some unknown reason, sold out, Catwoman 23. Catwoman 23, written by Anne Nocenti, art by Scott McDaniel and Rafa Sandoval. The issue starts off with Catwoman and Tinderbox on their mounted horses with wearing the gas masks going through the underground. They get kind of lost Catwoman uses a little bit of the equipment that Alice Tesla gave her in the previous issue to try to help navigate them. As they continue to navigate, they come across all kinds of weird things scattered all over the sewers. Eventually, Tinderbox, once she figures out Catwoman tells her which way they're going, she actually attacks Catwoman and says there's no way that Catwoman's going to stop her from being able to link eye-to-eye with her future husband. And in other words, she's pretty jealous of the possibility that Catwoman could outshine her. So she's trying to take her out. As they're fighting amongst themselves, all of a sudden, some men in gas max approach, capture them, bring them back to the facility. And as it turns out, these are the people who they were going to meet in the first place. As they're being told why they're there, and they're telling the henchmen why they're there, the room starts to gas just enough so that the room actually is able for people to breathe without the gas masks, and then all of a sudden the main person walks in, the guy who's supposed to marry Tinderbox, walks in, he explains the whole story about what Dr. Phosphorus is really after. He's been using chemistry to create these diamonds from pressurized steam from down below in the, inside the earth. We then see a odd cut scene of a bunch of cement surrounding the sinkhole that we saw in the last issue being filled with cement, and we find out that Catwoman has no desire to continue to be here. As we see, there's a uh, woman who's walking around saying that she can flood the whole underground anytime she wants. She continues walking, and it seems that cat that's been following Catwoman around is actually following her. As we continue on, uh, Catwoman gets into a fight with a bunch of the henchmen. She realizes there's no way that she can beat them. She tells Tinderbox they're going to leave, and as they're about to leave from the... As they whip open the door, they actually run into Joker's daughter. The end. 
Okay. You probably could tell that I was a little lost because when I read this book, I, I fell asleep three separate times when I was reading this because I was bored. I was also tired, but it was hard to keep track of exactly who is who when I was reading this. At first, I thought the, the guy with the biohazard symbol over his eye was the person that Tinderbox was supposed to marry. Then later, I was led to believe that it was actually the guy who's introduced later on, who's a little bit smaller, but seemingly better looking, I guess. The whole Joker's daughter thing was kind of a throw-off. I really didn't understand what the point of this was. Honestly, it's kind of like a wait-and-see situation as far as what Joker's daughter ends up actually, like, what her origin actually is, because there was a character, as we know, Dula Dent, a.k.a. Joker's daughter, a.k.a. every freaking villain imaginable's daughter at some point, and there's, obviously, this character's a little bit different because she's got the Joker face plastered to her face, so we'll have to wait and see exactly who this character is. But I don't, honestly, I don't have a whole lot to talk about. So what what was your thoughts of the book? Honestly, when I read it, I, I thought that it was perfectly, should have a second printing. I mean, it's just a wonderful issue. I'm joking. I don't know. I mean, it just, it seems like it's the same story we've had. It seems like we've been telling the same story for three or four issues. And it just kind of, it's rambling on. And, and I'm wondering now if this whole three issues set up down in the catacombs, the sewers, whatever you want to call it, isn't just a setup to introduce like a four issue setup to introduce Joker's daughter. That's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, and then meanwhile we still have Rat Tail somewhere seemingly dead because they they completely forgot about him. I, I mean the problem is that the the biggest problem with this series is as we we said the same thing last month. The biggest problem is that they start these little these little subplots then they leave them along to just keep going forward, but eventually it's like a, it's like dominoes. You set up one subplot, you set up another subplot, you set up another subplot, and then sooner or later you've got a long enough row where the ones that are at the end of the road they start falling down, and you don't even have any idea that they they exist anymore. Dominoes is probably not the best metaphor to use for this, but the thing is, you, you forget about some of these things. Like there's stuff that happened months and months ago let's think whatever happened to the two uh detectives that were seemingly trying to figure out what catwoman and penguin were up to we haven't seen them since the penguin thing what happened with the whole penguin gang war what was the point of that if it lasted for the short amount of time that it actually lasted was the point of introducing the the weird electric electric guy that worked for penguin if he seemingly is gone as well what was the point of having rat tail fall in the hole and then rat tail is seemingly gone what's the point of introducing alice tesla now the one catch is alice tesla that she at least got a name drop in this issue same thing with rat tail but you, you see what i'm getting at is just they keep setting up these things and then they just disappear we can go as far back as what happened to the uh the but a guy. black mask treasure the black mask treasure yeah, that was the, i mean yep the Black Mass Treasure, there was the guy who was giving Catwoman random jobs. He appeared two issues ago, I think it was, when uh, Gwen appeared for the first time in a while, too. It's just, they, they keep introducing all of these characters in this book, but what is the reason behind it? It really doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere specific. It, it seems like we're trying to tell a massive story and we're throwing as many characters as we can along the way. And that's the problem I also have with Villains Month, in a way, is and as much as I am legitimately looking forward to a lot of what we're going to get in villains month and i am i'm looking forward to to the majority of the titles that we're going to get but the problem is is it adds another month in the narrative which is why i i wish they would just done like a series of one shots over three or four months for the villains 
because you have something here where this rat tail fell in a hole, what, two issues ago, three issues ago? So three months ago, and then we're going to take a month off. For it. So we're going to be five, six months before we find out about the guy falling in a hole. That's just too long to care about anymore. All right. So Catwoman number 23, I'm going to give a total of one out of five batterings. I'm going to give Catwoman number 23 a total of one and a half out of five batterings only because I was curious to see what the first, first look for uh, the Joker's daughter would be. All right. So that's going to give Catwoman number 23 a total of one out of five batterings. So we're into our next book, Batman and Superman number three. Batman and Superman number three, split screen. Writer Greg Pak, artist Jay Lee, and Bildar Sindar, who did the flashback scenes in the book. This story opens up with both Superman, Wonder Woman, Lois, and the Trickster on the roof in Metropolis, where we left them at, at the end of last issue. Wonder Woman manages to get the Trickster out of Lois's body and wrap it up in the Lasso of Truth. Clark then heals Lois' wounds using his heat vision. After some questioning, we get the information that K.O., the Destroyer, is coming. The Trickster, uh, who's still in the Lasso of Truth, also tells them that their Batman has a secret, and he is holding on to the most dangerous weapon in the world. Clark then spots the crystal that Batman has hundreds of miles away back in uh, Smallville and flies off to confront his friend. We then get put into a flashback that happened 25 years ago when Alfred's car had broke down in Smallville. Clark was walking down that very road, and him and Bruce played together in a field while Alfred worked on the car. Jonathan Kent shows up eventually to help Alfred, but at this point, Bruce and Clark have gotten to a little bit of fight in the field. We then flash back to the present day. Clark arrives in Small Mill with Wonder Woman, the other Superman, the original Superman that we saw, and the trickster in tow. The crystal the original Batman had attacked Superman with is still there, and Clark realizes that it's not kryptonite, but a focusing crystal that had focused the energy of a much smaller piece of kryptonite. Clark then finds a secret base by focusing his, his vision and listening into NSA phone calls. Wonder Woman asks Clark if Bruce has betrayed him, but he says it's not like that. And years ago, he advised Bruce to make sure he had a way of stopping him if something ever went wrong with Superman or he was possessed. We then go back to the flashback we were at earlier, and we see the young Bruce flip Clark uh, as the fight starts. But Clark responds that he wants to know how he did it, and Bruce and Clark become quick friends. Later that night, we see that Alfred and Bruce join the Kent family for dinner. After dinner, we see Bruce has deducted how strong Clark is and breaks a stick over his head to prove that he knows and tells him that he thinks it's, it's cool that he's that tough. Uh, we flash back to the present day again, and Batman fires his missiles on Superman. The younger Superman rips Batman out of his plane, causing it to crash. The younger Batman and Superman start fighting. The two older ones talk. Batman says he shot down Superman because he knew the missiles would stop him but not kill him and the government missiles that he was flying into could have killed him. Clark finally talks some sense into the entire group, the younger Batman and Superman, and decide they're going to join forces and go after the Shard after all. But the trickster, which is still in the Lasso of Truth with Wonder Woman, screams out the Shard is the only thing that can save their world. There is the crash of a boom to opening, Dark Side is coming, and they must decide who will save the world. To be concluded in number four. Okay. The first question I had here is that we're really given a, a much earlier than their, their, their still children of Bruce and Clark meeting than I can ever remember them meeting as, as children before. Does this, like, childhood meeting, does, that, does this work for you? Do you like this? What do you think about that? You know, I think it was okay. The problem is I was under the assumption that this was happening on the other Earth. This is it, – it's not – this is happening on Earth 2. This is not happening on, on uh, the normal Earth, so – I'm okay with them doing it either way. It really didn't make a difference. If it was on the normal Earth that everything is normally happening on, 
I would be okay with it too, but it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't work only for the fact that it wouldn't explain why Superman and Batman don't really know who each other are. In this world, on Earth 2, with them working with each other, I think it's really kind of cool to set up their first meeting when they were kids and kind of, you know, maybe they became pen pals or something once Bruce went up back to Gotham City and Clark stayed in Smallville. I think it, it could, it, it's a cool idea and I, and I think it works for Earth 2. Yeah, I kind of agree. We've seen so many of the first meeting between Bruce and Clark having to do with them two fighting each other or some duration of that, you know, they hate each other. They're working on a case together. There's an alien menace. I think there is something interesting to the idea that they met in a much more um, civil way when they were younger. Uh, yeah, again, too, I kind of assume it's earth two. I wouldn't mind it being on, on, on the primary earth of the DC new 52. I just don't know how you could work it into continuity without causing even more problems, but I did like it. I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was a cool way to handle it. There are just while we're on the flashbacks, the art's really different on the flashbacks. Do you do you kind of like it when they mix art styles in a book like that, or would you rather see them stick with a consistent art style? For flashbacks, I think it's okay for them to do different art styles. Honestly, I think that in most regards, I think that it's kind of jarring sometimes when you have multiple artists on a book. But when it comes to flashbacks, it's supposed to be a completely different time frame or completely different situation. So I'm okay with them doing something like that. Um, now, on the other hand, one of the things that they tried to do with like the first two or the, well, more so the first issue than the second issue was when they were, when they got thrown to the other worlds, it was jarring because they were using an artist for the world, but for whatever reason, the character didn't look the same as the original character. So it started to get a little confusing if they weren't in different costumes it would be really, really confusing. And Batman really, I mean, there was very small differences between the suit. It wasn't like Superboy from the normal Earth who was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and Superman who's in his full-fledged costume. It wasn't like that. So it, I think it's okay, honestly, if they were going to, if they were going to continue to use two artists in the future, it would make sense for the artist, whatever Earth it's going to be placed on. So if it's on Earth 2, the artist who's doing the Earth 2 art, that's what they do. And the characters that are from Earth 1, or not Earth 1, Earth, whatever the number is, I really wish DC would just come up with the actual number that it is, so that way it could actually be referenced. Earth Prime or whatever. It's not Earth Prime, but it's it's annoying that they that we don't have an actual Earth. But anyway... It would be interesting to see the artist who is taking those characters from the other Earth and draw them on the backdrop of the other characters. That way you have a very distinct difference between the two artists, even though it's happening in two different worlds, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I've, I think this is the best way to do it, not just with flashbacks, but it works well with the flashback. But I think anytime you're going to have to mix artists on a book – I like it when there's a reason in the narrative for the art change. Not, I mean, because how many books do you see where it's just 10 pages in and it changes? So if you're going to have to split up art duties, and I can understand why there's a, a variety of reasons why in the real world you would have to split up art duties just like any of us have to split up jobs at our office from time to time. I like it when they do this sort of a reason for the art and it kind of makes it flow a little better. You know, and then we off the flashbacks, we kind of get into the regular action of the book and it to me, it seemed like it kind of we kind of rushed the 
both Batman and Superman are both friends in that two panel where the the older Batman and Superman basically tell him to shut up and simmer down. What did you think about that? This kind of this book kind of was the transition piece from them being at odds with each other to them being on the same team. How did you think that transition was handled? I don't think it was handled very well because the the biggest problem is that you know you you as the reader are led to believe hey you know they're friends because of the situation that happened when they were kids. That's what we're led to believe as soon as the flashback starts happening. We see them getting along. The problem is that. The quick answer of chill out, he's one of us doesn't make a lot of sense because as the character is standing there, they would have no knowledge of this sequence of events that happened when they were both, when Clark and Bruce were children. So that wasn't handled very well because I didn't really understand why they decided to break up the, the, because very specifically, Superman says to Wonder Woman and the other Superman, no, it's not like that. It's, 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 he's, it's not like that. When he, when they reference Bruce being, or Batman being against him. And Superman says, no, it's not like that. Then they start flying. Then all of a sudden there's missiles coming at him. And then the immediate reaction is, let's tear the heck out of this plane. Okay. So you tear the heck out of the plane. And then after the fact, it's, no, it's not like that. He's my friend. And it's like, oh. Like, that could have been explained a little bit better rather than, oh, we're going to go find this this place, and on the way we're going to come across Batman, who, by the way, it's not what you think. And then I'm going to pause for, you know, maybe another 500 miles before I get shot at, and then, because I didn't finish my sentence, you're going to tear his $300 million plane apart. Yeah, not to mention that I'm sure the two Batman had been in the older... Earth to however you want to look at it, Batman, had been lecturing his counterpart the entire time too. That I just thought it was a very quick turnaround. Like I thought that it would have, we could have really used some moment. Uh, and again, I, I don't really have a clear idea for it, but some moment where the our our Batman and our Superman from Earth, I guess we'll call it Prime. Then it never, you're like you said, they never tell us from the original Earth have a moment where they have to trust each other for one reason or another. I thought that would have been more effective than just the other two yelling at him and then kind of giving in. So that transition, I know that that's what this issue, at least that's what I took from it, was it was supposed to show the transition, but I didn't feel like we had that transition moment to me. It sounds like you agreed, so that's really all I've got on it, unless you got something else you want to add. Nope. I mean, Superman number three, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I am going to give it three and a half out of five batterings, and primarily because I really am enjoying uh, Jay Lee's art, which is not the type of art I really like, but um, I really do like it in this title. All right, so Batman Superman number three gets a total of Three out of five. Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batwing, number 23. Written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. Art by Eduardo Pensiska. The issue starts off right where issue 22 ended in Miller Harbor in Gotham City, where Batman and Batwing are taking on the Marabunta, and Batman very swiftly tells Batwing, you need to get to your father as soon as possible. I'll, I'll worry about these guys. As Batwing goes, he actually uses his invis mode to, to see, to, I don't know. It's not necessarily to try it out, but to basically show that it does work. As he uses it, he takes out a bunch of the, uh, little ant henchmen and then makes his way to the room where his father is being held. Once he gets into the room, he actually fries the man who's been holding his father captive his father explains that they need to destroy the weird device 
that was, it's like a, a biosynthetic computer that copies and forwards intel from one brain to another. They need to destroy it. So they throw up a uh, explosion. They get out of the room as soon as possible. Batman says, meet me at the rendezvous point. Batwing says, where? All of a sudden, a large explosion goes off, and they get back. Later on, uh, at the Fox home, Luke comes to the Fox home, only to find his entire family pretty pissed that he's not there. After they all scold him and say, Batman saved Dad, and, you know, you're, you're a piece of junk who probably was partying all night instead of watching the house because the house was looted. Meanwhile, in Mumbai, India... We come across Lady Vic, who is in the process of taking out a target. She's contacted by someone saying that they need her to take out not a specific person, but a location, and the location is Wayne Enterprises. She says, well, send me the details and figure out how to get to Gotham as soon as possible. We then cut to Gotham City two nights later, where Luke is having a date with his ex-girlfriend, Xena, who is telling him that she is actually dating somebody else. After he explains that he is pretty ticked about that, and she says, well, your dad, you know, maybe your dad's right, you just have to grow up. And he says, well, just because I'm not in a hurry to grow up doesn't mean I'm a child. Just as that, the Wayne Enterprises building in the background blows up, has a large explosion, and Luke actually sees the person who possibly set the explosion. It is none other than Lady Vic. She tries to escape when all of a sudden she dodges a set of batarangs that are attached to a net to catch her, but then she comes across Batwing. As she introduces herself, and Batwing introduces himself in a very weird, not, not, very chalant way, they start fighting with each other. Batwing seemingly is is immobilized because she fries his suit, and unfortunately because his suit is fried, he doesn't have the ability to be able to see, so all he is able to do is slip something on a piece of her armor and pretend that he is falling. But he actually is falling because he didn't know. Next up, splat. So, Batwing number 23. First thing I want to talk about is, what did you think of this new character that was introduced, Lady Vic? I mean, she seems interesting enough, to be honest with you. She does seem like, you know, we don't get a lot of her, so it's it's hard to make a judgment. I think her introduction scene where she kind of is being harassed by the youths or the, the men in the street doing a little catcall thing and she cuts up the pieces. It's kind of a cool way to introduce a, a female assassin. But I think that she's interesting enough in the page count that we get that I'm curious to see where she's going to go. I thought that she was a pretty introducing character. Considering some of the other characters that they've introduced in other books, I would say that this is probably one of the more interesting character. She is drawn a little bit over the top. Her suit that she's wearing in Gotham City, I, I never really can understand why female assassins have to wear such odd-looking attire, especially since, for some reason, her attire just happens to cup her chest right where it needs to so that nothing's popping out, but then the, the cleavage line goes all the way down to her stomach. I don't really understand it, but I'll, 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 uh, I'll let it slide because I thought that she was actually kind of an interesting character. Hired Assassin, yes, we've seen a number of Hired Assassins, but compared to the Lady Shiva we saw in the pages of Nightwing, I think that this was actually quite interesting. So I'm on board with her for, for right now. The next thing I want to talk about is... So in the beginning of the book, Batwing saves his father, and he unfortunately, because he saved his father, was unable to get back to his house in time. His parents' house gets looted, and his entire family is pissed at him because, of course, they think that he went out partying the night before. Is it just me, or does it feel like they're really 
making this character come across as extremely immature on every angle. They did it with the family. They did it with the girlfriend. I mean, the character really hasn't been shown to be immature in any way, shape, or form, other than the fact that he doesn't want to go get a job at Wayne Enterprises or any other place right after he graduates. But outside of that, they really haven't shown anything that makes you understand that this character, it's completely understandable for this character to be completely immature to everyone in his life. What do you think of that? I think that what we're getting here is that, and I think that, you know, we get to see it from Luke's perspective as well, which I think makes it interesting. I think his parents think that he is he is super mature and, and almost without much reason. I mean, it's obvious that he got great grades in school. I mean, that was the reason why Lucius gave him the whole speech about you could get a job anywhere making a ton of money. Let's face it, if you just got out of college and you can get a job anywhere making that much money, you've obviously got something going for you. And I think it's kind of the old superhero, you know, a lot of this is some of the classic superhero telling, and, and not in a bad way, because I'm, since Palmiotis took the book over, it's gotten really a lot, lot, lot better. But I think what you're seeing here is the fact that Luke is going to be branded as immature because he can't say, no, I wasn't out part. I mean, if your parents thought that your father got abducted and you went out to the club, they would think you're immature. And if you really did that, you would be immature. But I think he's put in the situation we see so much in comics or any type of medium, really, where you have someone with a, with a secret identity or, or a secret at all. He can't tell them what he's really doing, so he comes off looking at mature. But Luke is definitely getting kind of like the bad rap here from really not being a bad guy. Yeah, I would agree. So, I, I mean, like I said, outside of him deciding to tell his parents that he wasn't going to get a job right away and he was going to go travel the world and... Really, what he was doing was he was going to Africa to work for Batman, which was understandable, you know, that his parents would look at that and say, well, that's probably not the right decision. But if the kid graduated earlier from college, is super smart, could get a job anywhere, if the kid wanted to take a month or two off, what's the big deal? I honestly don't understand the reason why the ex-girlfriend would agree to go out with him just to say, oh, oh yeah, by the way, I've been going, I, I'm going out with somebody else. I hope that doesn't bother you. Well, then why did you agree to go out with him in the first place? That's what mind boggles me. But, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm liking the direction of the book. I think it's a lot better than the, than the direction that Batwing was taking before Graham Palmiotti took over. But I think that there needs to be a little bit less coincident situations. The fact that he happens to be on this date with his ex-girlfriend, who happens to be telling him, I'm going out with somebody else, it's a weird situation. But then, just by coincidence... The rooftop that they're on just happens to be across from where the explosion is going to go off, where it just so happens to concern this character that appeared earlier in the book. I mean, obviously, that's going to happen here and there just because it's a comic book, but the date was completely unnecessary by any means. It didn't really establish anything in one way or the other, other than his his ex-girlfriend also thinks that he's extremely immature and sides and sides with his father more than anybody else. But outside of that, it really didn't establish anything. So I would like to see him have a girlfriend who is not, you know, telling him that he's completely immature. I'd like to see that re because it seems like he's one of the few characters that actually could have a relationship and it could be shown the, the difficulties that he has as a person with being a superhero and trying to manage the superhero and the relationship. We haven't really, we can't really see that in any of these other books because the characters are completely off the wall, violent and angry and 
they just don't have time for girlfriends and other situations or boyfriends. So I, I think that this is the one character that that could work for. So I'd like to be able to see that. Yeah, that scene with the girlfriend was really, I mean, here's what I think Palmiotti may be doing here is he could be trying to build. And if he is, then I salute him because he, if he did this on purpose, he did it really, really well. You start to feel a little bit for Luke by the end of this book, you know? You're like, geez, his girlfriend goes out with him just to tell him he's, she's going out with somebody else. And then he saves his dad's life, but now he's got to take take crap from his parents because he's been mature. I mean, if what he's trying to do, if he did this on purpose, is try to make us identify and form some sort of connection with Luke, then he's doing a good job because this book feels like the guy's had a really bad 48 hours. All right, so Batwing number 23, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. I am going to give it a total of... Four out of five. I really liked it. All right, so it's going to give Batwing number 23 a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Red Hood and the Outlaws number 23. Red Hood and the Outlaws number 23, All Fall Down. Writer, James Tinney the fourth, artist, Julio Gopez. We open up with the untitled talking about the certain victory against the League of Assassins, who they say is now being led by an amnesiac superhero, and that their knight, Roy Harper, will lead the way. Then it's right back in the action where we left it off last issue. Roy Harper's one-man attack on the League. He is being attacked by an army of man-bats that he quickly dispatches, and then is attacked by Greystone, who falls through his shielding system. Cheshire then teleports in and takes his power source, but he quickly overloads her teleport and sends her away somewhere, teleports her away. As the Untitled begin to celebrate a bit, they quickly grow concerned as Starfire flies onto the scene. Jason confronts Roy and tells him that this is where he wants to be, and the two begin to fight. Starfire shows up to break up the fight, but she is quickly attacked. While she is fighting her own fight, Bronze Tiger and Lady Shiva attack Roy, knock him to the ground, and throw him at the opening of the fountain, which he's been sent there to destroy. Roy pulls out his last trick and blows the fountain up. Starfire's combat partner... Shows up with an unconscious Starfire and with a safe Cheshire in tow. Bronze Tiger wants both of them executed, but Jason gives the order for them to be taken to the holding cells instead. Tiger says that Raish would never have done that, and Jason tells them that this is his way, and Talia must have picked him to lead them for a reason. As Starfire and Roy are being led away, she tells him that what they have uncovered, what they have destroyed, now they've uncovered this kind of spring or well under the fountain, that it's the only thing that can strip the untitled of their power, and that if they let it be destroyed, nothing will be able to stop them. Jason begins to hear voices as the All Blades appear in his hands, and the voice tells him that the All Blades will help him restore the balance of good and evil. The Untitled begin their final assault on the League as the issue closes. Next up, Immortal Combat. Okay, this issue is essentially Roy Harper's assault on the League and Starfire showing up. Starfire gets taken down. You know, one of the things in the Red Hood series we've seen so far is that Starfire is by far the most powerful one around them and, and even holds up to people like Superman with her power set from time to time. And I'm just wondering, she goes down pretty fast when she gets in the league. Did you think that she went down a little too quick in this issue? I'm not super familiar with the person who took her down, their power set, so I don't know for sure. We're led to believe that these characters have really, really strong powers. But I don't know enough about them to really judge whether or not she was taken down. It did seem like she was taken down really quick. And the fact that I don't know who this character is who took her out makes me think that either it's a character that we purposely don't know enough about so that it's okay for her to have been taken out so easily. Or it's a character that 
we don't know because, or we don't know their power sets and we're not fully aware of them because they're not going to be around for very long. Yeah, that was kind of my thoughts on it. it. It's tough. Anytime you have a character that becomes tougher and tougher, it becomes more unrealistic and more unrealistic to take them down. I didn't particularly like the way it was handled here, to be honest with you. Like you said, I even tried to figure out the name of the character and couldn't even come up with the name of them. So I really wish it, it, we'd had, you know, I, I think that she was misused kind of kind of in that. Roy blows up the fountain here, but essentially only because he gets thrown at the fountain after they've pretty much disarmed him. I was just wondering what you thought about this whole kind of the sequence with Roy Harper, which is really the, the centerpiece of the book. After the big lead up to his invasion of the city last week, do you think that this Roy Harper fight scene paid off? You know, I was trying to actually think of the entire basis of this book as I was reading it. We have Roy Harper going after Jason. Jason, who wants nothing to do with Roy, but wants to be where he's at. But Roy is convinced that that's the only reason that is, is because Jason got his mind wiped. Meanwhile, Starfire is telling them both to stop, and it, you know has no problem taking either one of them out to prove her point before she's taken out herself. It, I mean, like, really, you could get rid of all the other random characters in the room and just have the three main characters that are part of the series in the first place, and it's basically, this is their way of having a fight amongst themselves for their own various reasons, whatever they may be. All the other characters in the room, all of the scenery that's around them has has little to do with anything outside of the team just being at this really large point of turmoil. And Roy Harper, he honestly, he's coming across as a complete idiot to me. I don't really understand it at all because he's meant to be this genius whiz kid who's able to build all these crazy gadgets and stuff like that. But when it comes to like just thinking about certain things, this organization comes to you and says, hello, we want you to take out these people, and in return, we'll give you your friend. But he's not even thinking about what the repercussions for from this could be at all. He's just thinking, oh, sure, they're going to help me get my friend back. It, it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, I'm just chalking up as Roy Harper, he's not a very likable character, in my opinion, and they're doing a good job of keeping him not a very likable character. Yeah, if you want to put it in the vein of Roy Harper's unlikable and they're keeping him a character, that's that's certainly I mean, it's a 100% accurate way to look at it. You know, anytime you have this kind of one-man assault in the castle, it's almost doomed to fail. But I don't know. I I don't think it was awful. I just think that's again, the, the balance of power should have shifted more severely when Starfire showed up. And like you said, he's Roy almost instantly just because, "Hey, I can get your buddy back for you" is leading the world into possible destruction and damnation. So, again, not a super, super likable thing to do. The other thing that, kind of off the fight scene, the end of the issue here, we see Jason get the all blades, as they're called, and you hear a voice start talking to him. Who's the, uh, who's the voice? You got any ideas on that? I don't know who the voice is for sure. I would guess that it has something to do with the Al Ghouls in some way. The problem is we don't know for sure whether or not Talia is actually dead based off of the events of what happened in Batman Incorporated or if she's still alive and they're just going to pretend like that never happened. We know Ra's al Ghul is still around, and at the end of Batman Incorporated, he was seemingly taking back his empire, so the explanation of where the al Ghuls are and why they're not there to keep their 
Ultimate Fortress safe? I don't really know. We we do know that next month, as told at the end of this issue, that we're going to see a Razel Ghoul story during Villains Month, so maybe we'll get some sort of explanation. But I, I honestly I couldn't say who it really is. I mean, it could end up being that crazy little bald guy who wiped Jason's mind. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different characters that have popped up in this series that, in my opinion, throwaway characters that I I couldn't really decide who it would be. If it's someone that that's not really an unknown or the Al Ghouls, I haven't the foggiest idea. Yeah, I I guess I hope it's an Al Ghoul because I want to have an Al Ghoul sighting in this book. But the, the I was thinking kind of along your lines that it's going to be uh, Mr. Mindwipe and somehow these blades are going to give his memory back because it's the all blades and it's from the all cast. Yeah, you know, maybe something kind of heading down, heading down that path. But yeah, and then my last question, and a real quick one, is: Do you think we're going to get an Al Ghul sighting here in the next month or two in this book? See, it's debatable. It really, I think, is going to depend on what we end up seeing with the Razel Ghul villain month story next month. Because the problem is, Batman Incorporated, because it just ended last, well, in in July. I think the biggest problem is that we don't really know how DC is going to. Ultimately, you, you know, incorporate, incor- Batman incorporate into the New 52 universe. We know that for the good chunk of stuff that was happening inside the pages of Batman Incorporated, that there was a lot of stuff that they were just either ignoring. The only thing that really seemed to hold any regard was the death of Damien. But at the same point, I don't know that Talia staying dead would, if she would actually stay dead, or if there would be some explanation of she got brought to a Lazarus pit and now she's basically Razel Ghoul in female younger form. I don't really know for sure, but it ultimately just comes down to what ends up playing out in that ser- in that in that book, because that'll be the first time we've seen the Al Ghouls outside of Batman Incorporated since the new fifty two started. Yeah, and my kind of gut feeling for some reason and I and I got no empirical evidence is that we're we're not gonna see them. I don't know why, but I got a feeling that we're just we're just not. I think that when Tinian kind of dreamed up this story, he probably didn't have any idea what Grant Morrison was going to do in Batman Inc. And this was probably wrote outside of his continuity, but I would like to be wrong. So that's all I got. All right, so Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 23. I'm going to give a total of three out of five bad rings. I am going to give this one a total of two and a half out of five bad rings. All right, so that's going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 23, a total of two and a half out of five bad rings. Let's move into our next book, Birds of Prey, number 23. Birds of Prey, number 23, written by Christy Marks, art by Romano Molinar. The uh, issue starts off right where the last issue ended, where the birds have all been taken out by this organization that used to work with Condor. As we see Uplink, the character who has basically put them under a mental whiplash, she has them under control, but she can only hold them for a certain amount of time. As they are waiting for their transport, we see the characters imagining different scenes, either their dreams or events, uh, basically their dreams of what they wish could happen with their lives. Condor is actually dreaming of Black Canary and dreaming that they could, you know, actually be a couple, they could have romantic nights together, he could give her foot massages and so forth and so on. We then see Black Canary's dream, where for whatever reason, she's still with Team 7, and we actually see the scene where Kurt Lance died 
but in this dream, he doesn't actually die, so she's happy that he's not dead. He specifically tells her, it's alright, you're strong, you don't need me anymore, and then he disappears, and in turn, in her dream, Condor appears, and she can be with Condor now. We then see Batgirl's dream, where it turns out James Jr. is not a psychopath, and they can all be a happy family because her mother doesn't leave because James is a psychopath. Instead, she stays in their one giant, you know, American dream family, and her and her brother can be super smart and, you know, trade different news and stuff like that, and happy, happy, happy all around. We then see the transport, and it's arriving. They're packing up the, uh, they're packing up Condor and Black Canary, and they're going to leave Batgirl and Strix there. We then see a scene for Strix where she basically her dream is the day before she became injured, she was having a picnic when all of a sudden the little firebombs parachutes are coming down and one falls and it blows. Uplink can no longer hold the mental thing because of the dream that Strix had and as she loses control they, they try to attack the, the team, the remaining team members who didn't get on the transport yet attack Batgirl and Strix. Batgirl snaps out of it and Strix and them get into a fight with the two brute guys. As they speed off with the transport, Batgirl and Strix stand on the rooftop trying to think of a way to get them back. On the uh, transport, Black Canary wakes up, and her canary cry refuses to work, so she punches through the tube that she's been in, and she comes across Kurt Lance strapped inside of a tube inside the facility that she has been brought into. Next, the long-awaited reunion of Black Canary and Kurt Lance. Alright, so the first thing I want to talk about is the dreams that they all had. Obviously, these were the best situation dreams. Condor dreams of Black Canary. Black Canary dreams that Kurt didn't die, or if Kurt isn't around, she can be with Condor. And then Batgirl dreams that James basically isn't a psychopath. The one interesting thing that I, that I thought of these dreams was Strix's dream. The fact that her dream is not really a situation where it really comes across as the dream is is something that actually happened. It was more like a flashback. This is how I became who I am today because of this this firebomb thing that happened to me when I was a kid. And that's that led me to believe that was the reason why Uplink couldn't hold the 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 mental link between them because of the dream that she was doing. What did you think of the dreams overall? You had a little bit of a different take than it. Not saying that you're wrong, but I kind of I thought that the reason why Uplink lost him was just the time thing. Was that it was the stress of holding them all in. I didn't really identify it as it was to do with the one dream from Strix. Although that does make sense because Strix is, does seem more like a straight memory than a, than a kind of fantasy land. But you know, looking at the dreams, I mean, I think you're you're, you're seeing just kind of the stuff that we would we would kind of if, if me and you had sat down and they said, "All right, fellas." You know, what would, you know, Batgirl think was her, her perfect world to live in? What would Diana's, what would, you know, I think that these are, are pretty close to it, to, to be honest with you. I am getting a little sick of the retread idea of Barbara Gordon always wishing that James Gordon Jr. wasn't a whack job. I mean, I understand that, that she doesn't want her brother to be a nutter, but he is. And I don't really don't think there's much we can do about that. But I mean, I like the, I mean, this kind of dream sequence concept is very interesting to me. But yeah, Strix has kind of took me out of it. But what you're saying is kind of making it make a lot more sense. I couldn't understand why everyone else had painted like an idyllic future. And then I thought maybe it was because 
Strix had no concept of happiness, which was why she couldn't even dream up a happiness scenario because she didn't even know what happiness meant. So, yeah, no, I like your idea better than mine, actually. Okay, and then the other thing, I've gotten tired of this whole Kurt Lance subplot thing that's been happening in the book. The story has always really been focused on Black Canary a lot more so than any of the other characters. Black Canary is the one character that's been in this book since the very beginning, but there was already, at one point, a Team 7 book that wasn't very successful. Yet we keep rehashing this Team 7 idea over and over and over again and dealing with the death of Kurt Lance, but it was never really explained other than she was involved in the death of him. And then, and I don't know if this was explained in Team 7 because I didn't read Team 7, but, you know, when Birds of Prey first started, they made a big deal about how Black Canary was on the run, she was a murderer, and she needed to get away because... People thought that she murdered somebody. It was led, we were led to believe that that was because her husband died. And then we see here this situation where if this is actually what happened, based off of only what I've read in Birds of Prey, if this is what happened, how could she actually be blamed for his death? Yes, she could feel guilt for it, but she could not be held as a murderer and have to be on the run from the law because of it. So, this whole Kurt Lance thing, I think, has been going on way too long. And the fact that they had the whole Team 7 series that lasted as long as it did, even though it wasn't very long, they had a series that was Team 7 that also focused on Kurt Lance and Diana Lance. It, to me, it just comes across as, this is a little, little ridiculous. We need to get past this. And... I, I just wanted to know your thoughts on this. Well, you know, if I remember correctly, and I've been reading Bird of Prey since it got relaunched, the New 52. I didn't read it before. I mean, I dipped in and read a graphic novel here and then, but I didn't I didn't follow it religiously. If I remember correctly, the last thing we kind of had, the kind of the final word in the matter of this was that Black Canary blew him apart in a hotel room, right? Because she couldn't control her scream, something like that? Yeah, that's where I was in the discussion. Yeah, but I even remember there was a cliffhanger back in the day, uh, like six, seven, eight, nine issues ago, and like, oh, we're going to find out what happened, and we never did. If I remember correctly, and this is me just going on memory, but we are supposed to remember these. You're supposed to be able to follow a comic book month to month without going back and rereading it to make sure you got the story straight, right? So what I remember is she blew him apart in a hotel room because she couldn't control her canary scream. We got flipped into Night of the Owls, and when we came back, we never addressed it again. I'm assuming that when this murder investigation was done, there was some link to the fact that I'm not trying to be gory, but that his DNA was splattered all over the hotel room. This is the only thing I'll say about this Kurt Lance thing as far as – and I'm not trying to be over negative about it. But if let's, if this is going to be it, let's get it over with. Let's just end it one way or another. Either kill him, don't kill him, have them together, have them don't be together. But let's make a definitive thing and move on here because I could care less about the Kurt Lance story, to be honest with you. I agree. All right, so Birds of Prey number 23, I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batterings. I'm going to give a total of two out of five batterings for my aforementioned idea that I just can't stand this constantly trying to make Jim Gordon Jr. a regular guy when he is just not. All right, so that's going to give Birds of Prey number 23 a total of two out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Teen Titans number 23. Teen Titans number 23, hello, I must be going. Writer... Scott Liddell, artists Robinson Rucker and Wayne Fetcher. We picked this one up just where we left off last month with Bart being pulled through a portal by many hands. It takes the combined forces of Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Superboy, Solstice, Red Robin, and Raven 
to shut it down and keep Bart safe and on our side of the portal. We didn't see into the future where someone had to slaughter the entire quote-unquote echo base just to attempt to bring Bart back to justice. Back in the present, and Raven tells the group that whoever was after Bart has a history with him. Red Robin convinces the group that what it really needs is some time to relax. Beast Boy and Bunker are trying to do just that, hanging out around the pool, when Bunker gets a text message that he is awake and is asking for him. A quick cut to Cassie and Connor hanging out on a rock face overlooking the yacht and talking about the recent events. Cassie does admit that although she is attracted to Tim, she can make her own decisions and kisses Connor. Tim and Raven are having a heart-to-heart as well. And Tim tells Raven that if something happens to him, then she will be the one that leads the Titans moving forward. We cut to Bart running across the water when Solstice catches up with him. They also make up from their recent fight, and they kiss as well. Bunker calls everyone to, uh, to huddle up and tells them that the love of his, of his life has woke him up from a coma, and he is leaving to go be with him. The gang wishes him well, and he is on his way. Next up for Teen Titans, two issues in Villains Month. Question for me, the big one that kind of kind of jumps out at me at reading this issue is, at the end of last issue, we had this whole buildup of everyone was mad at each other, Wonder Girl kissed him, Solstice kissed him, we had everyone was mad about everyone for something, and by the end of this issue, they're all happy again like it ever happened. Does that cheapen the ending of last issue at all and kind of make you wonder like why we did it, or were you okay with this kind of quick wrap-up to it? I was okay with the quick wrap-up only because I didn't like the fact that everyone got super pissed at Tim at the end of the last issue. Makes sense. The the big thing was, I thought it was completely... I mean, we talked about this last month, how how could they... They're all hypocrit- being hypocrites because, you know, they were all under the power of Trigon and attacking each other. And then, as soon as they're not under the power of Trigon, suddenly they're all going to get pissed because Raven, Raven reveals that Red Robin has been under the control of Trigon for the last couple months. I think that... That whole situation was blown way out of the water more so than it ever should have been, number one. But number two, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that they wrapped it up pretty well. And one of the biggest things that we complained about over the last couple of months was the fact that we don't see a lot of personal time with these characters. We don't see them not being thrown into these crazy events. Yes, the only real crazy event was the continuation of the last scene from the last issue where Bart is being pulled into that, you know, black hole or whatever. And they're all, they all have to work together to help him not get taken away. But outside of that, everything was, it was a pretty normal issue. And I think that, you know, normal being it was just exploring the relationships between the characters. It was, it was more than just let's throw everything we possibly can at this team that we don't know a whole lot about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of have a similar feeling. I, I, I kind of felt like this was. You know, like the blow-up fight that happens, and then 10 minutes later, when everyone looks back and goes, wait a minute, what were we fighting about? You know, like, what, what was that all about? So, yeah, no, I, uh, it was a good character piece. So I actually agree with you on that. So, you know. The one thing I thought was very interesting was is Red Robin is, is talking to Raven, and Tim tells Raven that if something would happen to him, she would be the next leader of the Titans. And I was wondering if you thought of the, of the people present. Now, t- taking, it, taking the fact out of it that we know that she is, you know, working for Trigon. Just from from Tim's perspective, and he doesn't know that she's working for Trigon. Would would Raven really be the next choice to lead the team? You think? Well, I think it's hard to say who would actually be the person who would take over if Tim was gone. Because honestly, I think all of the characters, in their own ways, have problems 
where they wouldn't necessarily be able to lead. They work well with with other people, but they're not. None of them really come across as great leaders. The only one, honestly, that I would even remotely come close to is probably Cassie. But I think a lot of the times she seems like she's looking out for herself more than anybody else, and that's not going to be. That's not going to make a great leader. So I think that ultimately none of them really have worked with each other. I think the whole reason of why Tim decides to do that it was. I didn't read Ravagers, so I don't know this for sure, but I would be under the assumption that Raven was the leader of the Ravagers. And if that was the case, it would make sense when the two teams kind of combine into one, even though the majority of the Ravagers are now gone, that the leader of the other team would, you know, be essentially second in command. But I don't know that for sure because I didn't read Ravagers. You know, you're bringing up a good point because I never read Ravagers either. So I don't know if you're right or wrong. If she was second command for Ravengers, then that makes some sense. If she, I might have to go grab the graphic of that because if she was the whole time working for Trigon, her whole time leading the Ravengers, then I think it makes her more of a maybe a villainous backstory for her trade-off. Yeah, and the kind of my thought too was maybe Tim would make her the leader of the Titans because he doesn't feel like he has a better choice. Like you said, you know, some people you can scratch off automatically. Beast Boy, no. Bunker, no. Maybe Connor could grow up a little bit and do it, but it, it, it was almost kind of flooring when it, when I started going through the, the the names. This is what kind of struck me about it. And I thought, well, taking the fact that we know she's a traitor, there's no way that she's only been with the team for two, three issues. And then I started going through the list of everyone else on the team, and I was like, nope, nope, maybe he's right. So, yeah, just, I was just curious to see who you thought the next leader would be because there's normally a – a second in command, and I think Tim's missing that person, and that might be the character Raven ends up being down the road. Last point for me, Bunker leaves the team. Just kind of a quick one here. Kind of a two-part question I kind of wanted your opinion on when I was reading this book was, do you think Bunker's going to be back with the team in a, in a month or two? Just just a quick break for him. Do you think he's leaving the team permanently? And this was a character that was introduced new, just for Teen Titans. Have you grown attached to the character at all, or would you mind if he kind of set sail now that we've got Raven and Beast Boy on the team? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying that I don't think that he is permanently leaving. But if he, for whatever reason, was permanently leaving, I don't feel that I would be super taken back by them getting rid of the character. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the character that makes me dislike him, but there's nothing there that really connects me to the character either. Because they created this character and he was one of the one uh, one of the characters that they created for the Teen Titans within the New 52... It really didn't hold true. I would have liked to see Beast Boy on the team right away, but the explanation of why he was on the Ravagers in the first place made sense. So, so that aspect was fine, but I, I don't think that I would, I don't, I wouldn't have a problem if he was off the team, but I don't think he's going to be off the team because one thing that I noticed is, well, so his, his boyfriend wakes up after being in a coma for a very long time. So he basically he's taking a vacation. For whatever reason. But it's also said that Beast Boy is going with him. I don't know if you caught that, yeah. but it actually said that Beast Boy was going to go with him to make sure that he gets there safe. Essentially, I just, I got the weird assumption that he was going there so that he wasn't going, he wasn't going to have to be alone. I definitely don't think he's gone for good. I think that he's probably going to be back probably in the next issue, the next issue of Teen Titans. I wouldn't, I, I honestly, I, I wonder if he, I don't know which team members are going to be in the Teen Titans Villains Month issues next month because I don't know exactly how they're working or if they're legitimately only going to be focusing on the villains, 
but I think for sure there is. I think he's going to be back as soon as as soon as he can. Okay, and you know, I kind of it, it's. I don't want to say this to make people think that I hate when people introduce new characters because I don't. Um, but especially in a team book, you know, we have so much limited page count. And we're got so much we're trying to fit in with other characters like Wonder Girl and Superboy and of course Tim and I just feel like that I haven't got a real attachment to Bunker again I don't I don't dislike him and he's had some pretty cool moments uh, the scene during the Death of the Family crossover when he was basically schooling uh, you know Red Arrow on on how to fight you know saved saved his his ass a few times I mean he's had some it's had some cool moments I remember but I probably wouldn't be too broke up if he never came back either so that's all I got for it. The, the last thing I, I do want to bring up is I thought it was pretty hilarious how Connor just straight out asked Cassie, what, you want to sleep with him? Yeah. Referring to Tim Drake, and she says, well, why, who wouldn't? He's hot. Of course I would. And I, I just thought that was pretty amusing that they just randomly threw that in there. Well, is Tim the new, like, Dick Grayson of the new 52? Because remember, what was it when, what's her name in the Batman comics, the Scott Snyder creation, the chick? Harper Rowe. Harper Rowe. Remember her brother, who, who's the gay character in the book, was like, man, did, did you meet Tim Drake at the party? He's hot. And I'm like, what's up with Tim? And he's the ladies' man now, isn't he? Yeah. And and we we can already see some something happening between him and Raven, too. And I'm not necessarily opposed to that. I don't have a problem with that. I, I do have to say that I think Raven looks artistically a lot better than she has done in previous incarnations of her. I do like her new her, her newer costume compared to her old costume. So I think that they have taken that character in the right direction. But that's not I, again. That's that's probably more so of, of based off the events that happened in the Ravagers more so than the events that has happened here in Teen Titans. All right, so Teen Titans number 23, I'm going to give this one a total of three and a half out of five batterings. I'm going to give this one four out of five. I really, I mean, besides the, some of the stuff I talked about, I really I really enjoyed this issue, and I felt like it did make a lot of the things I disliked about the last issue go away. All right, so that's going to give Teen Titans number 23 a total of three and a half out of five batterings. So we'll move into our next book, Talon number 11. Talon number 11, written by James Tinian IV, art by Seisman Kodransky. The issue starts off at Gotham City Police Department, where a officer is telling Jim Gordon that a girl is locked up who is Casey Washington, but she is known to be dead. As they get to the interrogation room, she is gone. It appears that Casey is heading towards the roof. Meanwhile, on the island of Santa Prisca, the team is surrounded by Bane and his army. Uh, after... Calvin explains to everyone to scatter. We cut back to Gotham City where Casey has turned on the bat signal. She thinks that Batman is approaching her to, you know, so that she can tell Batman about the situation her daughter's in. It turns out it's actually the Butcher, the Butcher Talon, that is, and he decides he's going to beat the heck out of her. Back at the uh, Panadura prison, we see the girl member of the team, Anya. She is facing off against Malissa. She explains that. He has no idea what he's getting himself into because she trained with Ra's al Ghul. She was the sparring partner for Ra's al Ghul, as a matter of fact. On the other side, we see the other two members of the team, not Kelvin, but the other two male members. Ed and Joey, we see these two characters coming across a villain. They're being told by an evil professor that there were some Green Berets that approached the island when they first took over the island, and they pumped venom into him, and the only one that survived was this one person, and he only acts when they start singing America the Beautiful. 
and he comes to attack them. Now, on the other side of the prison, in the dungeons of the prison, Calvin is standing there waiting for Bane to approach. Bane approaches. Bane starts beating up Calvin, explains that he should have died the first time. Cut back to Gotham City, where Casey actually electrifies the Butcher Talon for a very short amount of time. Just enough time, as a matter of fact, for Batman to show up. She doesn't look like she's doing so well, Batman tells Gordon, as Gordon comes up to the roof to call an ambulance. After that happens, he says that he will figure out how to fix the situation now that he knows that Calvin is involved. Back at Santa Prisca, Joey and Ed are trying to take out the Venom's Green Beret. They throw some Venom at one of the supports in the room, and they drive the Green Beret into it and make their escape. We then see that Anya has taken out the gentleman very easily with her swords. And then back in the dungeons, Bane is actually taken, not necessarily taken out, but there's some acid that Calvin sprays on him from one of the pipes and unfortunately causes Bane to not be able to chase after Calvin as Calvin is able to fit through a small pipe that Bane will not fit through. He explains to Bane that he is going to go to Gotham City and warn everybody about his secret invasion, and he leaves. They get up to the airplane on the top of the prison, and all four team members make their escape towards Gotham City. As they come back, Calvin tries to get a hold of Casey Washington, only to find out that the other person on the line is not Casey Washington, but Batman. And Batman explains that, that Casey has been hurt very badly, and he doesn't think that she's going to survive. Back on the Santa Prisca docks, we see... Bane talking to Sebastian, the former Grandmaster Sebastian Clark, and he explains that there's a problem, but they can, and Sebastian explains that they can still take the boats to Gotham City. Bane says, you know, there's a problem. There's a gentleman who comes up and says, I have a man who has a solution, and I have a better solution than Sebastian Clark. I can offer you Gotham City, as he tells Bane this. Sebastian Clark is basically pushed to the side as Bane says, our partnership has outlived its usefulness, and he whams his head and kills him. He then tells this the gentleman who has approached him, now tell me about this society. And he says gladly. Bane's story continues in Forever Evil Arc More and This October in Talon, Felix Harmon Unleashed. Alright, so Talon number 11. First thing I want to talk about is the combined efforts of the team of the three people that were working for Casey Washington along with Calvin Rose. The three of them working together to very easily take out all of these different henchmen once they split up. But they were fully aware that if they took them all all on at once, they weren't going to be able to do it. But if they split them up, they were going to be able to take them out, as they proved they did. What did you think of kind of showing off some of the skills that these members have? Since we've seen some of their skills in the past in previous issues of Talon, but like to be quite honest, I was having a hard time remembering some of these characters' names because they're not super well-known. Do you think that these characters will play a more prominent role going forward with Calvin Rose? And if so, how do you think they will still play into the series if Casey Washington actually does not survive? I think they are going to play a more prominent and hope and more permanent role. Only because I think that we forget that for the, for the first five, six issues of Talon, seven issues even, Sebastian Clark was kind of the supporting character before his turn to, to evil or uh, his, or I guess, more accurately say us being revealed that he had been evil the entire time, Sebastian Clark was kind of like the supporting character in the book. So I think what we're seeing here is a fair amount, or, or what I hope to think we're seeing here, is a fair amount of world building in the Talon book. I've always kind of liked Casey's little agents, but the problem is, again, and, and I kind of like 
I think this may be a, a absurd to be a reintroduction to them because I had forgotten a lot of what they specifically did because it's been a while and a lot of stuff's happened. I don't say for sure that I know that they're going to stay, but I hope that they stay. And I hope that Casey makes it too because I think that if you have Calvin and Casey and then her agents and the daughter, I think you're maybe getting together some kind of world building that I could be interested in that group of people when it doesn't have – it wouldn't have to have – Bane in it or something Batman related for me to kind of stick with that group of characters maybe. Alright, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about is we see the inclusion of now Batman. We've seen Batman pop up in Talon before, but now it seems like Batman's really going to be thrown into the mix given the fact that he is now involved with the Butcher even more so than in previous issues, that he could in fact be going to look for Casey Washington's daughter, the fact that he has that communication with Calvin Rose. How do you think Batman will play into the series, and what do you think the main reason for Batman coming into the series is? <sighs> well, that's, that's an interesting question because there's two reasons for it, I think. The main reason in real life for Batman in the series is that anytime you put Batman in a book, it sells more copies, right? Yep, that's what I was thinking. I mean, I mean if, you want, if you want the reason that in the real world he's in the book, that's the reason he's in it because town sales aren't doing great. I mean, they're not you know, the worst ever, but they're not doing great. So you throw Batman in and people buy more copies. So if we take the real world explanation out, maybe the narrative explanation we're going to get, and this is something I'd be very curious to see. And if they handle this with Batman in the book, I would be very interested to see where it goes, which is, I think that at some point, Batman's going to have to have the realization that what he thought he did when he destroyed the Court of Owls just didn't work at all, right? I mean, don't you think we're going to have to have a moment where, where he realized, I mean, isn't this... Return of the Court of Owls and Talon, very similar to like the Joker or something coming back from the dead, if you look at the court as a singular villain as opposed to like a Two-Face or a Riddler. I mean, because at the end of Snyder's Court of Owls, they were supposed to be destroyed, and now they seem to be back at full strength, don't they? Yeah, they definitely seem to be back at full strength. And I can't remember if it was in this book or if it was during a review of Birds of Prey, but we've talked about, I think it was Birds of Prey when the Talons popped up over there, you know, we talked about the fact that for whatever reason, the whole point of Night of Owls and uh, having all these people involved in Night of Owls was they were rounding up all these talents. At the end of Court of Owls, Scott Snyder's story, the court was basically decimated. The majority of the members were taken out. It wasn't until Talon came out that it was revealed that Sebastian Clark was still investigating and finding out there were still members of the court out there. But all of these talons, you know, that have popped up in the pages of Talon, somehow still exist, even though Batman supposedly took out the Court of Owls in the book. Like, we talked about how Talon is kind of like one of those books that isn't really necessary, but it was out, it was put out there for the fact of Court of Owls did well, so let's, let's kind of bank on that for a little bit and do something to bank off the fact that Court of Owls was a successful story. That being said, I don't really understand why we are getting what, what, not necessarily why we are getting a talent story because I understand the talent story and like the progression of it. But at the same point, it really just comes across as this odd story that really shouldn't exist because Batman already took these people out. Just like Strix, part of the birds of prey, they should not be dealing with the court of owls and ran at random points. They're, they're just looking at ways to bring the court of owls 
that was a success into their story to, again, that same aspect is bringing Batman into your story. If you bring something that is successful, it possibly could give you some better sales. But don't you think they're kind of missing the point here that the fact that the reason why, and I, I don't, I, I think you like Court Owls, that the reason why everybody who enjoyed the Court of Owls storyline, it wasn't because we read it and we're like, wow, the Court of Owls is kick ass. Look at those bird masks, man. That's awesome. Talons are killers. It was because it was this neat story that was interwoven through history, and it was supposed to be that something had been going on in Gotham that Batman hadn't been aware of, and the architecture. And the, I mean, wasn't that the cool part of the stories? It wasn't that they had really big, fast talons? Or did I miss it? No, no, that was supposed to be the point of the story. And the problem is that we see that happen a lot, where you know something is really successful, but then what happens is there, there's specific reasons why it's very successful, but... DC gets this idea that it's just successful and they can bank off the name of it. Not necessarily the reasons why it was successful and why people really liked it. Just they can bank off the fact that it was something that, you know, they can, they can use that name, Corvallis, they can use Talon. I mean, honestly, look at the book Talon. There's nothing at all that links this book to the actual Corvallis story other than the Corvallis that was supposed to be decimated at the end of the Corvallis storyline. And the usage of talents. There's no other links to it. There's, there's not the history. We're not getting any, like, connections of the history of Gotham City to the Court of Owls like we were. A lot of the stuff, like you just mentioned, it, it really just comes down to they don't know, they're, they're, they're telling a story, their own individual story that has nothing or little to do with the original source material. Yeah, and, and to me, it's always would think that you would see that, and you would you would see what Snyder wrote in Court of Owls. And I get the idea that when you see something at your company, be it a comic book company or a marketing company or the type of company on the planet, you see something successful, you want to use that to bring more success to your company, your bottom line. I mean, I get all that. I don't live in a in a world where I think it's all about art and all that. But I mean, if you read Court of Owls, I can't believe that that was their takeaway. I mean, you'd think that they would say, "Well, what we need is." more grown-up stories that dive deeper and they're better written. And I mean, it just it, to me, it seems like they read it. It's just like you said, they saw one thing and then went the wrong direction. So just out of curiosity, while we're off the subject for a minute, how much longer do you think this book, Talon, is going to be around? Again, I don't think it's awfully wrote, and I think Tinian's a pretty good writer, but how much longer do you think they can keep this going? See, I don't know, because honestly, I said the exact same thing when they, when they first announced Batwing. I said I didn't really understand why they were doing a Batwing story, and that was off the tales of Batman Incorporated. And that series, it, it did, it, in my opinion, my personal opinion, it never really was that great until this whole Luke Fox thing just happened a couple months back. So, knowing that... You know, they did the exact same thing with Batwing, and then they ended up deciding to change the complete direction of it in order to, you know, shake things up so that the series would continue. I don't know. I, I almost want to say that I could see this continuing on for at least another year, only if Scott Snyder ends up doing something in the pages of Batman that references the Court of Owls again, because it'll give a little bit more of a, like a you know, you know, a marketing push in a way just because it'll be like, oh, well, hey, you want to see this? Check out this. This is a story that's all about this. I don't know. It's just, I don't necessarily want to see this book last forever. I, when this first was announced, I didn't even like the idea of the book in the first place. That's one of the reasons why this was one of the first books we cut off the main comic cast was because I didn't like the idea of, you know, focusing on, you know, doing these books that have very little to do with the original source material. So how long do I think? Maybe in one more year. 
I know sales aren't super bad, so it's going to take a little bit longer for them to fall down. But we'll we'll wait and see. And I just my, my kind of last thought on this is, is this is and I don't think Calvin's an awful character or anything like that. But these kind of things I think are better suited. I know we don't see them at all anymore. I can't remember maybe Penguin, Prane, and Prejudice or that Huntress one. But this is the thing that screams to me would have been better wrote as like a six issue miniseries. Yes, definitely. You know? And then what they could have done was they wrote it as a six issue miniseries and then. They leave it open-ended where if they wanted to bring the character back into continuity at some point, they could. That would have made more sense than this continuing story involving all of these other characters. Yeah, I agree. All right, so Talon number 11, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. I'm going to give Talon number 11, first time we're going to agree, three out of five batterings. So that's going to give Talon number 11 a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our last book. Batwoman, number 23. Batwoman, number 23. The blood is thick. Veins. Writer, J.H. Williams and H. Hayden Blackman. And art, Trevor McCarthy. We open this issue up with Kate and Maggie 18 hours before the mission starts. Kate says that she is ready, but Maggie thinks she may need some more training with her new gear. Kate tells Maggie that she is going to make the fact that she injects her with fear toxin right. The only way she knows how, by injecting herself with fear toxin. Kate grabs a syringe and injects the toxin into her neck. We then see Flamebird and the Crows capture Agent Asif. We then cut back to Kate and Maggie. Maggie looks on as Kate is ravaged by the uh, Scarecrow toxin. We get an inside look inside her nightmares, and we see some images of Bones and Batman. And then we cut back to the Crows and Flamebird, who now have Asif tied up and are beating him general torture, trying to get him to answer where Beth Kane is. Flamebird realizes that this approach will never work on him and sits down to make a deal with the prison. She knows he is a man who wants to move up in the world, and that if he takes her deal, then Bones will lose his job as director of the DEO, Chase will go with him, and then the job will be his for the taking, because not a lot of people in D.C. seem to like Bones's approach to handling things. He decides to take the deal and gives the position on a GPS to Flamebird. We then cut to Agent Chase, who is baiting the trap, so to say, for Batman and is apparently setting Riddler, Bane, Poison Ivy, and the Mad Hatter free in Gotham City. Back to Maggie and Kate. Kate finally wakes up and Maggie tells her that she's been out for over 12 hours. They have a heart-to-heart and both confess their undying love for each other. It ends when Kate asks Maggie to marry her again and she says yes. We then see Bones overlooking the city watching an explosion as Kate suits up as Batwoman and gives Maggie a goodbye kiss before she jumps out the window. Next issue, plots. Got a couple things on this issue here. The first one, kind of in chronological order of how it happens in the book, is with only 18 hours left to the start of the mission, isn't Kate kind of – I mean, I understand that she's trying to make an overture to the woman she's in love with, but isn't she kind of going a little too far by injecting herself with fear toxin only 18 hours before the mission? Yeah. That's you would think. You know, this is a very important thing. This is going to be the way for her to get her sister back, and to take down the DEO. And they've trained for this. And of all the things to do, you're going to inject yourself with some drugs, regardless of what they are, right? Because there's not going to be any kind of side effects or lasting effects that could compromise your mission. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and, and the, you know, it's even the fact that she's out for twelve hours. It gives her six hours before wheels up, and she's been. Yeah, I. Um, Did you find it a little odd that, despite the fact that they stated she had, six, you know, that that they it was six hours before wheels up, and she decides to leave six hours ahead of time? Yeah, yeah, I did. I found that a little weird too. Uh, I, I, and again, it's not that it's bad writing. It's just that 
I mean, she's being emotional. And, and if she wanted to do this grand gesture, just wait till the mission's over, right? Wait yeah. the two days. Wait till you got your family back together, and they go, oh, by the way, and then nip the syringe into her neck. So, yeah, I, I mean, I get it. I get what she's trying to prove, but the timing is it's just bad, bad timing. The second thing is we see this we, – you know, we, we talked about the first time that – the first time we saw the marriage proposal, we didn't get to see it, that it was you know, off, off panel, which is something I, I kind of always hated. So does this kind of showing it this second marriage proposal down the line, does this kind of make up for the off-panel marriage proposal for you, or do you just wish we'd seen the original – I never really had a super big problem with them not showing it. You know, I probably voiced a large concern originally, but ultimately it doesn't make a lot of difference whether or not they showed it or not. It is nice that they do end up showing this one as completely off as it is because, you know, basically the reason behind it is they're trying to, Kate's trying to get over the fact that Maggie's upset with her because of this fear toxin thing that she, she forced her to do. And Maggie, you know, basically has not forgiven Kate and has been holding over her head for the last couple of issues. So the whole idea behind this is, you know, they're trying to, it's like a fresh start. That's basically what it is. They're, they're trying to give each other a fresh start by, you know, forgiving each other, coming to an understanding. And then the only way, the best way to have the fresh start even more so is by then in turn telling each other, you know, asking each other to, to get married yet again. I think it's, it works and I, I, I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was particularly bad, and I normally hate nonlinear storytelling. I'm not a big flashback guy, but I would have liked to have seen a flashback here. i got to hate saying that because I hate flashbacks, and I feel like they're overused to the point of insanity at some point. But I do think I would like to have seen a flashback to the original one, and then they could have done this scene. But I am curious how she asked her originally, but I guess that's something that we'll get at, at, at some point. Then kind of the, the elephant in the room in this issue is that Apparently, the D.E.O. lets free Bane, Poison Ivy, Mad Hatter, and Riddler into Gotham. I won't get into the fact that how do they have, that Bane is here and talent and all that. We're just leaving that aside for a minute. Don't you think this is a high price even for the D.E.O. to try to trap Batman as putting four of these super criminals back on the streets? I think the whole idea is they're trying to – to me, it's coming across as they're trying to reenact the situation that – happened with Nightfall, where numerous villains were out and about, and because Batman was being pulled in every which direction, he was more susceptible to an attack, and that's how Bane ended up getting him, was because of it. It It's smart, but at the same point, and, and I can honestly, I can explain why Bane's there, because Bane's there because the D.E.O. caught him in that frozen wherever a couple issues ago. They're obviously ignoring everything that's happened in the other books, but Knowing, you know, that's that's clearly what they're trying to do. They're trying to reenact what happened during Nightfall. Do I think it's a bad idea? You know, I'm I'm sure it's going to end up biting them in the rear end, and that's probably one of the reasons why Bones and Chase are supposedly going to get kicked out of the DEO is they're going to find out that they were letting criminals loose in Gotham City, and that could be one of the reasons why they end up out of a job. Yeah, and, and my thought, too, was that I think this could be set an interesting tone for the book. One, I, obviously, it's this letting those type of people loose is not not going to work out well. But I do think that an interesting thing maybe because I think that this current plot with them breaking the Dio's maybe only got two more issues in it before we're going to have a wrap-up. And I know that Batwoman traditionally does drag the plots out longer, and I don't mean that to be insulting or negative about the book. They just 
do more long form storytelling. But I think that an interesting point could be maybe after we'd have this DO wrap up here that maybe we see Batwoman spending her time going in. I mean, if you have a, a she has to go get Bane, Poison Ivy, Riddler. I mean, if you see her trying to go and trying to wrap up these criminals that the DU at free, I think you could build a whole another good solid year of storytelling on her going after those four criminals. I think that that's actually a really good point. I wouldn't mind that mind seeing that at all because then we would see the continuation of this. Yeah, and I think that so far the writers in this book have done such a good job overall that that although I would normally be kind of more negative about the idea of letting them free. They've kind of proved over time that they do most stuff with an eye to the future. So I'm going to give them a pass based on their, their credibility with me so far. So that's all I got for this one. All right. So Batwoman number 23, I'm going to give a total of four out of five batterings. I am going to give this four out of five as well. All right. So that's going to give Batwoman number 23, a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move straight into our listener Q and A's. Just a couple of different ones to go over. First up, Richie says, Wrote in about this before, it is Earth 2, and obviously he's referring to Batman Superman. And here's the interview to prove it. He provides a link, and I actually read the link, and it actually does say, Greg Pak does say it was Earth 2. He also says, also you could check out their costumes. Earth 2 is where Catwoman and Batman are married. Then the next comment, well, I'm sorry, Richie, thank you for that comment. Thank you for the clarification. We appreciate when not only... If we have a question about something or we're not understanding something, somebody provides an actual source to something specific where we can find out that information. So thank you, Richie, for that. All right, next up, Matthew says, Great podcast. I'm a big fan of your guys' work. Keep up the awesome work, brothers. Well, Matthew, thank you very much. We appreciate the kind remarks. Thank you. All right, and then finally, Joe Jenks from the Comicast <laughs> says, I'm surprised you guys had such a strong reaction to the news that DC put a stop to Batwoman's Killer Croc arc. It was my understanding that Dustin doesn't like supernatural elements in the Batman universe. Not only that, but it would be changing the origin of Killer Croc. I absolutely love issue 21 and would be very interested in seeing Blackman and Williams take on Killer Croc, but to be honest, I don't think it should take place in continuity. It sounded to me as if you guys were possibly overreacting because you were annoyed that DC Editorial would deny a story, but maybe you're right and I'm just being too much of a fanboy, not wanting to see any deviations of Killer Croc's past. Well, I actually, when I read this uh, comment when when Joe posted this, I, I started thinking about this. And honestly, yes, there is a lot of elements that I don't like. Supernatural is one of the biggest ones that I'm not a huge fan of. I'm not saying I never want to see supernatural elements in the Batman universe, but the majority of the time I'd like supernatural elements to be outside of it. Batwoman, on the other hand, is a completely different story, and that's part of the reason why I was okay with this. Originally, when Killer Croc was introduced, he was introduced as this odd creature-like character in the pages of Batwoman. I didn't really like it originally, but honestly, that issue 21 made Killer Croc more understanding to be the supernatural, more of like a character who has evolved. You don't necessarily have to mess with his original incarnations or his history, but you could you could just make the character evolve. And there's a difference. Like, I don't honestly see a lot of writers doing that nowadays. They just say, okay, I'm going to take this character and give him my take on them. But I think that you could still keep the character intact with what they originally were, but just make the character as if, you know, he's like, because he's some, he's this mutant freak, he is evolving as time goes on. That's not to say he's going to have some mystical powers, because I never really got the notion that that was ever going to happen based off of the stuff that Williams and Blackman were writing. I was more in the lines of that 
Killer Croc was going to be aligning himself with characters who were doing that, and he would just be put as charged because he was so outside of what they were normally used to. So I, too, would like to see more Killer Croc in the pages of Batwoman, whether or not we actually see that based off the conversation we had at the end of the last point five episode, we'll have to see. But I don't think that they're going to have to necessarily completely rework the history. And that's where I'm at with that. Yeah. And see, my thing is, and I very close to what you said, I thought, and I also thought Batman the Dark Knight, when we first had the New 52 relaunch, was going to be, the Dark Knight was going to be like Batman Dark, like, like a Justice League Dark title. Like it was going to be the supernatural Batman one. And I don't mind. I don't like. I don't want supernatural stuff in like Batman or Detective, or even Batman and Robin. But I don't mind it when it's in. And I think Batwoman is a, is a supernatural book. And I think. And I, I had hoped that the Dark Knight was going to be like that. And to be honest, and I understand Joe's concern. I do. I mean, because every time you monkey around with an origin, you might come up with a great new one, or you might come up with Tim Drake's new one. You know. So I understand that when you start playing around with stuff like that, it can upset people. But. To be honest with you, there's when you when you have an event like the New Fifty Two, which we were led to believe and we all hope to believe that it's a once in a lifetime thing that we're not going to have this continuity built up for fifteen more years, twenty more years, and they go, "Ha, oh, I'm going to pull up the rug from you again." Take that time to make some characters better, and I think Killer Croc is one of those characters that could have used more of a fleshed out and changed backstory. I liked the way that. The, the writers of Batwoman had kind of taken him into this idea of being a little more human, a little more less monster, a little more brain. And I was just – I was curious to see where it's going to go. And the last point I'll make about it was I think all these second-tier books that we deal with – and I think that Nightwing is included in this, what I'm about to say. All the second-tier books plus Nightwing – well, essentially every character who's not Batman, to be totally honest with you – needs to develop a true – arch nemesis villain type situation like batman has with the joker and i think the, the yeah. killer croc would have been an, an excellent pick for batwoman but everyone needs to have one they need to i mean it, it because it's like i said like i've said before why was death of the family such a big deal because it's batman the joker why because he's got a history if nightwing red hood tim drake yada 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 all had this history of deathstroke is tim drake's uh, who cares the riddlers is red hoods whatever then I think that that can do nothing but make the books better by developing an arch nemesis that we look forward to seeing those characters interact with. That's all. See, and the thing is, they, they did do that in some senses with some of the characters pre-New yeah. 52. In the pages of the individual series, Nightwing and Robin, they had their their main villains. Anarchy really was was one of Tim Drake's main villains. Two-Face, towards the end, was becoming like the Joker for Dick Grayson. So there was a lot of different things that were going on towards the end that I think were working really well, that it's a shame that we really haven't seen that. And it's also a shame that the majority of the characters that have been used in a lot of these second-tier books are not necessarily characters that we are used to seeing because the majority of them are brand-new creations that writers created. Now, the thing is, I wouldn't have a problem with new creations, but the problem is if you look at the pages of, like, let's just use, for example, Batgirl. Every single issue that Batgirl has had throughout this entire run, outside of James Jr. appearing and the Joker crossover where Joker appears, every single villain has been a villain that Gail Simone has created specifically for the series. We have not really seen a character who has not appeared in the series. Even characters that could have easily been, like they could have used a character like Firefly in the Ray Fox storyline that they did a couple months back where there was... Somebody setting fire to buildings all over Devil's Square. 
They could have easily used an existing character like Firefly, but instead they just they chose to create a different character. I honestly don't like the idea of them constantly creating these new characters. It's fine when you create characters every once in a while, but if all we're ever going to do is just throw a gazillion characters, it reminds me a lot of what Tony Daniel did with a lot of the stories when he was the writer on a lot of his stories after he took over Detective Comics after Batman Battle for the Cow. He actually took over Batman. A lot of the stories that he was writing, he would incorporate a random villain from Batman's past, but he would always be including these new villains. Or creating these new villains. And, you know, he'd have Riddler pop up, but the role that Riddler would play would be some weird supporting role for this new villain that they were creating. And it just came across as downplaying the severity of some of the, the main villains. And I think that, in general, all of the allies of Batman since the New 52, none of them have really had their distinct villain at all. They don't have a villain from the past. They don't have a distinct villain that you could really say, this is their villain. Because most of the villains have been taken out within four issues. Yeah, and I and I think that I think that's really really true. And here's my my kind of last point that I'll make this without droning on too much is create a new character if you need to, or if you have a. But don't like you said with the, with the fire, you know, with the guy setting fires could be could be Firebug. Don't create a new character when you have an existing character that will do the job better. Quite frankly, more interesting. Yeah. Like if some. I could just see that some idiot create. No, I didn't mean to say that. Some some creator right now creating a character that like it's amazing. He creates he he commits murders on the days of the year like Calendar Man, but he's not count. You know what I'm saying? Like if yeah. if you're doing something that a, that a character who already exists fulfills the role for, then don't create a new character. If you've got some new groundbreaking idea like Scott Snyder's original Court of Owls, then do your own thing. That's totally cool. You invented something new and unique. But if you're just doing something that another character can be used, and here, let's be honest, if Firebug had been that issue, and I know the one you're talking about with Firefly, Firefly, Firefly. sorry, had been in that issue, would you not have honestly been more interested in reading it than some random guy setting fires? Yes, I would have. And that's the thing, because there's that whole history element. And I think the problem is that the, the editors at DC, and this also obviously gets back to Joe's comment, yes, it was also more of a comment about the fact that we were upset about DC editorial having these choices over the characters that we see because it comes down to how many of these characters have creators said we'd like to use these characters and DC says well the problem is we have all these new readers and they don't know anything about them so you're not going to be able to reference anything from their previous history because nobody will know about them because they're all new readers. Instead of using that as an opportunity to market some of the old material, and that's part of the reason why a lot of the Grant Morrison stuff that's been happening, even though it's been covering so many different facets of the Batman universe over the, not only during the last seven years of Grant Morrison's run, but also a lot of different points during Batman's entire publication history. I think that Batman Incorporated is one of those series where DC's looking at it and saying, there's no way we can market this to new readers. They're going to be so lost if they if we try to get them to read this. It's not even worth marketing this to the new readers. So they, they, they just halted a ginormous amount of publicity that they were giving the series prior to the New 52. That being said, I think the same thing holds true when it comes to them using villains. That's why, for instance, in the pages of Batgirl, we saw the Ventriloquist. Completely different incarnation of the character. Yes, now if you look at the character... Pre New Fifty Two, the character was dead, so that there's there's an argument there, but it's New Fifty Two. You could bring the character back, and no one would say anything. So the fact that they decided to just create a completely new version of this character, but use the exact same name, that's what frustrates people who have invested 
so much time into these characters. Yes, for a new reader, it doesn't make a difference. But you're alienating the majority of your your fan base, which is the people who've been reading the stuff for much longer than the New 52. Plus, don't you think this excuse they have that new readers won't know who they are? You remember, like, before, I mean, one thing, anybody could just type the name of the Google and find out more about the character in 30 seconds than they would ever want to know. But more than that, you remember, like, back in the day, I gotta hate to go back to the 90s, or the 60s, or the 80s, or the any other age, but the DC New 52, which I do like for the most part, but... There's a, they used to these little things called editor's note where, like, last scene and yep. issue, blah, 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 blah. He's a maniac who likes to set fires. And wouldn't that kind of just be all you need to, I mean, really put in there? Just, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and see, the thing is they do use editor notes, but I feel as if the majority of the time they're using the editor's notes nowadays is basically as a marketing tool for people to go pick up some other book. Yes. And that's the downfall. They're not, you know, they'll do these these points. Can't remember which book it was. It, oh, I know it was Teen Titans this month, where the entire first part of the book was talking about giving basically a description of every single member of the Teen Titans. And I'm thinking to myself, oh wait, it's been two years. Suddenly they're thinking they're going to get new readers to come into this issue specifically and start reading Teen Titans. That's why they're re-explaining to us who all of these characters are and spending so much time explaining to us this to us. I don't get it. Why do we need to be explained, you know, at least once a year who these characters are? It's a waste of time. Or waste it's not a waste of time, it's a waste of well I just don't really understand the idea of wasting so much page space. It's almost as if the writer said, Hey, I don't really know what to put in this book this month, so I'm gonna spend half the book reintroducing everyone to the characters that they've been reading about for months. Yeah, and my thing is, I used to like the old editor's note because they would say, you know, this character was introduced in, in Batman number 147. And a couple months ago, I did this. I was reading an old run of Detective from the 90s and single issues out of my long box. And I ended up going down the rabbit hole for like four and a half hours. Like, oh, I'll read this to introduce, you know, I'll grab that one. And the next thing I know, I had probably 50 back issues of Detective and Batman laid over in, in my in my office. And I'm like, how'd that happen? And it was all from reading the editor's notes. So that's all. All right, so if you have listener Q&As that you like us or questions that you'd like us to talk about in the next episode, email us at podcast at thebemuniverse.net, or the easiest way is to leave your comments in the actual post on the website for this episode. I do want to let everybody know who's listening to this episode. I would assume everyone also listens to the comic cast, but uh, for Villains Month, everything's going to kind of get turned upside down because of the large amount of books that are going to be issued over the month, and the fact that all of the second-tier characters, none of them are getting their own villain characters outside of Teen Titans. So for the month of September, we will actually be releasing one episode every single week, one per week, to just cover the one specific week worth of comics. And there will not be a .5 cast during the month of September, but instead Ed will be joining us, mixing with the normal comic cast staff to actually review all of these different books so you can expect as you're listening to this the first episode of the villains month episode should post the same day as this episode so as you're listening to this you've already been into the mix of one a week for quite a while so there's going to be at least four weeks in a row that are going to have comics podcasts that we will be releasing them every single friday so Make sure you are checking that out. But if you have questions related to these books specifically, we'll probably deal more so with these listener Q&As related to these books in October when we do the .5 cast covering, again, these set of books at the next time we actually do. So outside of that, I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the latest news related to movies, 
merchandise, TV, video games, and of course the comics. Also, check out all of the editorials that we have to offer on the website. There's tons of stuff that we've posted in regards to movie news and movie editorials, but also the Man of Steel sequel, as well as some different random things here and there. Also, we are currently looking for people to review the Digital First comic series. Ed has actually picked up and started to review Legends of the Dark Knight, which comes out on Thursday, so you can check out reviews of that series, but we're still looking for people to review all of the other Digital First series that we have, Batman 66, the Batman Arkham series, as well as the Batman Beyond books as well. So there's a lot of different stuff out there that we'd still like to get covered that we don't cover here on the Point Five or on the normal cast or on the comic cast. So I would encourage you, if you are picking up any of those books or are interested in reviewing any of those, I would implore you to send us an email at podcast.thebatmanuniverse.net with either a sample article of, or a sample review of the article that you would be, the book that you would be doing, or if you have a personal blog that you are posting reviews on, I implore you to send us a link so that we can check out your work so we can get your reviews up on thebatmanuniverse.net. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. You can also join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans related to all kinds of different things within the Batman Universe and some things that aren't. You can also leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. And you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. And this is Ed. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. See you guys. Thanks for listening.